This is KMTT, and this is Ezra Beck, and we'll be having for the next couple of weeks a series on uh, theological issues in the uh, Torah Yadut. A couple of years ago, I gave a series, I don't remember the exact name, but a similarly named series, uh, the very first year of KMTT, four years ago. Uh, then, the topics that I discussed, you could say that they were more or less medieval, in the sense that the topics were those which I think in medieval times were listed as the topics of, of Jewish theology. We talked about Ashkachan, the proofs of God, etc., uh, etc. Et uh, in this series, for the next few weeks, uh, I wish to deal with topics which are, relatively speaking, not medieval. In other words, they weren't explicit. The sources, I believe, are medieval, and in Chazal, and the Torah, but they weren't explicitly raised as the issues, the, the way that people thought about the issues involved in Yadut, and religion, and the relationship to Kashboku, etc., uh, were not usually framed in the manner, but therefore they are more modern, they're more modern topics. In terms of the content, the discussion, the sources, I don't see this a great difference. And uh, one of the things I tried to show in the previous series four years ago was that the medieval topics are extremely relevant to our lives today, and they're the Sadat, they're the basis of which all true theological discussions take place. Um, so in that sense, there is no difference between the two between the two series. Uh, but again, the way these topics are, are they're, they're lifted. The source of the reason to discuss these topics arises perhaps from a different framework. The topic today that we should talk about, uh, one might say, is the presence of God in human experience. And to phrase the question properly, I'm going to make an assumption, which perhaps one could disagree with. In order to have the discussion, I'm going to make the assumption. The question that I wish to ask is, given the fact that God is transcendent, and Vifnei Shenivra Olam, Vachrei Shenivra Olam, Vachrei Shaloye Olam, He was before there was creation, and after there was creation, after there will cease to be creation. God is eternal, and beyond, and above, and we are not, and we are created. Then where is the point of contact between man and God? Now there are two reasons why one might not think the question is legitimate. One might be because there is no such point of contact. Who says this point of contact? One could argue that, and perhaps the Torah agrees, that man and God do not share experiences. The, the gulf is too great. In which case, you can't ask where is the point of contact. And you might argue, and I, I think this, in, in effect, would have been the answer or the the attitude in the Middle Ages, is that you know, there's no such question. I mean, uh, what do you mean a point of contact? What do those what do those words mean? You you die when you talk to God. God answers you. God is God is active in the world. Things take place. There's hashkacha There's providence. There are miracles. The sun shines, uh, and we talk to God and He hears. I mean, what are you asking exactly? What is the point of contact? Okay, so my question is assuming that 
we believe and our religious experience is based on the fact that you can do more than speak to God and He will hear because He hears everything and knows that you spoke and that He will create an answer. He will create a cloud which will bring rain when you have a drought if you've asked properly and He decides to accede to your request. I'm assuming in the question that the religious experience demands more, demands that man can meet God somewhere where both man and God can be present. This is not actually a modern concept. In Hebrew, this goes back to the Pasuk in the Torah that says, Uvot Tidbak, which is translated in the English, and I will use this term because I don't think any modern English word quite conveys the meaning of Tidbak. The English official translation from the time of King James is, you will cleave unto God. Incidentally, the word cleave is an unusual word in that it means both itself and its opposite. To cleave is to separate as well as to join together. You will be joined unto God. Modern Hebrew, Devik means glue for that reason. What is Dveikut? Again, I, I just, you know, a note of caution. You could argue that the term doesn't mean what it sounds like it means. Chazal already asked, Is it possible to cleave unto God? Hello, God is, is fire. You can't be joined to God, you'll be burnt up. You can't even see God and live. And if Chazal give a certain answer. Unto God, to cleave unto God means to act or to be, to assume His midot. God is merciful, you should be merciful. I wish to understand that answer. But you could understand that answer saying, well, it's impossible, it's just a, just a phrase which means to do something similar. But many, many, and most of us understood the term to if not literal, nonetheless, to be real, that there is something called Dvekut, including the Rambam, who explains it as being a kind of intellectual Dvekut. And of course, in more mystical or more experiential approaches to Judaism, the Dvekut, the cleaving, the meeting, the joining up with God is greater and more and more substantial. And so, the question is, the initial negative assumption is correct. As Chazal say, God is a devouring fire. Or in philosophic terms, the gulf between man and God is the gulf between man and infinity. God is, is absolutely transcendent of the world. And so how can man, mere man, mortal man, transient man meet and cleave and join and have a common experience with Melech Malchei Amalachim HaKadosh Baruch Hu. I think one answer that's given to this question and I mention this as background 
in order to emphasize the seriousness of the question. One answer given, not in Judaism. A non-Jewish answer, but a non-Jewish answer which has a rather large following in the world today, is that of Christianity. I'm not saying this is the only answer that Christians give. I don't wish to uh, uh, have a superficial attitude towards Christianity. It's not important. But one of the answers Christianity gives is that, well, the meeting point between man and God is that God becomes man. There is one man who is identical with God. We consider that answer to be tantamount or these bordering on a bodhazara. Surely philosophically, philosophically, it is a bodhazara. To say that a man, any man, could be God or that God could become man. But in the context that we're speaking about, I just I just want to show how, in effect, that emphasizes how difficult the question was. I think that the notion in Christianity that God took on flesh and became man is partially based on the search and the yearning of the people who invented that notion to find a point of contact between human experience and the divine experience. And their answer was that you can't. You personally, the gulf is in fact infinite, but there's someone who represents you, there's someone else who has your experience and God's experience. He bridged the gap. And that's a miracle. And that's amazing. It has nothing to do with, and really, it, it, it's not your experience at all, but but that, that serves as the bridge between you and God because you can look to Him, to His man side, to His human side, you look to Jesus' human side, and then, and then th- th- that somehow combines. I, I'm not saying the answer makes any sense. It doesn't make any sense to a Jewish head at all, as was pointed out uh, 1,500 years ago by Tertullian, the two Jewish here. It's absurd. Or actually, he said it's heresy. I'm, I'm more interested in showing you how how, how difficult the question was that the only answer one could give, first of all, how important it was to give an answer, important enough to invent what is to to our ears and to our thinking and to the Torah's way of thinking, not merely technical heresy, but, but an absurd form of heresy, to turn God into man and man into God. But once we hear that point, I think that leads us to a Jewish version a Jewish counterpoint to the very same question. If Christianity says that there is one man who is both God and man, in my mind, that suggests, it it reminds me of a not-so-dissimilar Jewish formulation. The not-so-dissimilar Jewish formulation is Man, all men, are created in the image of God. A difficult phrase. One in which undoubtedly there is a great deal of controversy and dispute as to what it means. But the phrase says that there is a commonality between man, any man, not one man, but you and me. And of course I wish to point out, not only Jews. 
in the creation of man, man as opposed to everything else was created in the image of God. Man has a godly nature. Now, it is extremely difficult to understand that point, and I, that's what I wish to discuss today. And perhaps because it's difficult, it was not understood by some people. And because they couldn't or they didn't dare claim that every man has some sort of a divine nature, they resorted to the other possibility, and that is that no man has a, has a divine nature, but one particular man is completely God and completely man. That condemnation that Christianity says to the mass of humanity, you are irreconcilably not divine, is what I think Judaism combats. It's a major principle of Judaism that the infinite gulf between man and God, which exists, it is an infinite gulf, is at the same time bridged mit dabkim, there is dvekut, there is cleaving over the infinite gulf, and what bridges that gulf is selem elokim, the image of God. What does the image of God mean? The Bamam said the image of God is human intellect. By which he meant is that man can laskil, uh, man can know God. And to know God, even in a minimal sense, in the Mamam sense of the term, at least originally, is quite minimal. It means to know that God exists, that He has no body and that He is one. But even that minimal knowledge of God is acquisition. The human intellect to know something is to become one with it. What the Mamam calls the cleaving, the joining of the knowing and the known. The author of the Sefer Or Hashem, 15th century Spain, uh, late 14th century Spain, is more correct, says that he doesn't use the term Selma Lokim, but he says that the bridging between man and God takes place not in the area of intellect, but in the area of love. And he points out, in what may sound like a romantic kind of notion, is that if A loves B, that love, which is a form of joining together, he assumes that there's a metaphysical basis to love, that two people who love each other are in fact joined together, and that that can span infinite gulfs. He says this explicitly. Chastekreskas asks the question, how can God, the infinite, care and be connected and be interested in lowly human beings? The answer is because he loves them. And love spans infinite Infinite gulf. He doesn't connect it to the word semelokim, but I think uh, in, in other areas he in fact does. He says that the, the essence of to be human is not only intellect. And that he argues against the Ramam. The Ramam's emphasis on mind, he thinks, is, mispl- is, mis- is misplaced. The neshama, the nefesh, which is what loves, and which we know is also that semelokim, uh, is more than intellect. It, it's that which can love and has intellect. Uh, so he, he connects love to being the essence of a human being, which 
then put it into Bereshit, it will undoubtedly be connected to Tzad Adokim. Among other things, he says that God loves humans, and humans love God, and it's the same love. So to love another is in fact a godly a godly characteristic, and therefore that could be Tzad Adokim. Again, I'm putting words into his mouth, he doesn't say, but I believe, it's, I believe that it's implicit. Without contradicting either of those two opinions, I think it might be included in what I have to say. I want to give a different explanation of the very words Salmanokim. To say that man is created in the image, Salim Elokim, which after all isn't said in the Torah as a statement of fact. It's said as a statement of purpose. God says, I am going now to make man Salim Elokim, and then he makes man Salim Elokim. I think the word Tzedem here means what we would call today uh, architectural plans. When you go to build something, so before you do it, you, you draw a picture with specifications. Numbers and, and, and materials. Those are what the architect and engineer prepares before the builder goes to build. And successful building is translating the plans into reality. And if he does his job correctly, then there'll be a one-to-one correspondence, 100% one-to-one correspondence between the plans and the reality. Hence, in terms of creation, when God made a dog, God has a specification, a plan, a, a, a architectural plan, a drawn plan of a dog, and then he makes a dog, and sure enough, the dog is B'Tselem of the dog. The real dog reflects the Tselem of a dog, the ideal dog. Or perhaps I'll put it that way in a different translation of the word Tselem. The word Tselem means the ideal, the ideal in the platonic sense, the archetype that exists in the mind of the architect, in this case, in the mind of God. So dogs are B'Tselem of dogs. Later on, when people create idols, which are called tzlamim, that's because the truth is nobody actually worships idols. The argument that it's a piece of wood is surely obvious to any pagan as well. The gods live on Olympus. They live someplace else. But the idols symbolize the gods and the reason why they can do that is because since their gods are not infinite and transcendent, so a piece of wood is not a bad way to symbolize God. It's B'tzalmo or B'dmuto of the God with the small g. The, the statue of Zeus is the image of Zeus. And therefore it's a tzalem. It's a, it represents the plan, the archetype, the picture of the God. All things are created according to their plans. What is the plan of man that God has before he creates man? The Pasuk says, Na'aseh Adam b'tzalmeinu v'idmuteinu. The archetype, the ideal of man is God. How can that be true? So, we must understand it in a negative sense. There is no other plan of man other than God. In other words, for everything else, he can never surpass 
the archetype. He can never surpass the plan. A dog is no more than a dog. If the plan says that dogs are two feet tall, then dogs are two feet tall. Never more. Sometimes when you make something, it's less than the plan. It's off. But it's never more. The plan, the, the, the ideal to which every particular human being is a, an approximation is God. Meaning, there is no limit. It's essentially a negative statement. Everything else is bounded by its original limitations. If I put this much steel into the house, then that's how much it can, how much weight you can put on the floor. But man is not bounded. The only thing which bounds man is God, meaning the infinite. In other words, the plan for the creation of man is that he has infinite potential. This is a very radical statement. I think this is the shot of the words. Sedan means a lot more. Where does this infinite potential come into play? Is it in, in the love of God? Is it in the knowledge of things? Is it is in A, B, C, D. I don't know what it is. It could be in all sorts of things. But I think this is what the word means. It means infinite potential. And you have to realize why is this a radical statement? Because it goes against the Satellian logic. To say that the, the plan of something has to be concrete. Here I'm saying the concrete definition of what is a man is that he is able to be more than he is. Not that he is. It doesn't limit. The, the plan limits you. This plan frees you. This is the essence of what today we call, and this is a really a modern concept, even though its roots are found in Chazal, what we call human freedom. Humans are free as nothing else in the world is free because they're free from their very own nature because they have no nature. The nature of man is to be more than he is. Now, there's a self-contradiction statement and self-contradiction is very important to understand because it uh, will underlie everything else we ever have to say about this concept. It's not that you don't have a nature. You have it. But that's the nature you were created with or you created according to. What you are now as an instant in time is uh, six feet tall and able to do A, B, and C, and D and a certain level of goodness and a certain connection to the ideals of God, etc., etc. But what you are is that you can be more than that. There, there, there are two points here. What you are as of now and what you could be tomorrow. The true nature of man is not expressed in what he is as an instant in time. The true nature of man is what he could become over time. And to what what could you become? Famous Mamar of Chazal on the Pasuk which we read in Shabbat Shuvah and Haftarah, Shuvah Hashem, Shuvah Yisrael, excuse me, Shuvah Yisrael, Ad Hashem Elokecha, Kidolat Shuvah Shemavia Ad Kiseya Kavod. Man can reach the throne of glory. And in a further and deeper understanding, man can return to the throne of glory. In other words, not that you can climb unreachable heights. It's a return to your true nature. Not that you ever were there. It's not some sort of a claim before you were born you were there. It's a claim that it's coming home. If you would reach infinity, you would reach home. Of 
course, you and I both know that one cannot reach infinity. So the real meaning is not that to be God is to be man, but to always come closer and closer and closer to God is to be man. It's not that God was created, excuse me, it's not that man was created and he is God. Man was created and his upper limit is God. What he is is what he is. And his nature is that he is able to close more and more without ending the infinite gap between man and God. How does this answer our original question? It sounds like it doesn't. What I've just said is that, okay, man can come closer to God, but the gap is infinite. The Torah calls this transcending ability, calls it Tselem Elohim. You aren't God, but you are, your nature is not a hopeless dream. It's not a mistake to think you can be like God. You, in theory, can be like God because nothing says you have to be less except for the fact that the distance is, in fact, infinite. Becoming more and more like God is the divine in man. Tzedem Elohim, what's called in Chasidut, Nitzotz Elokam Ima'al, a spark from above, the Tzedem Elohim, the transcending ability of man, is a reflection of transcendence. Transcending is a reflection of transcendence. And man's ability to be unnatural, it's not a natural quality. Everything else in the world, not by accident. Almost by logic, it's a Vesatilian logic that all things are equal to themselves. And can't be more than themselves. The fact that man can be more than himself is a divine quality. It's creation yesh me'ayin. It's creation ex nihilo. It's not just unfolding of the potential that's there. The acorn becomes a tree because the genes of the tree were in the acorn. But man becomes more than man, becomes a superman, becomes more than himself. Man grows not by unfolding his potential that's already there, but by scaling heights that are truly above him But that is the nature, that is the divine nature of man, that he is limited by nothing else other than his aspiration to become like God. To quote a bad source, bad, not in the sense that it doesn't support what I'm going to say, but in the sense that it's bad. To quote the Nachasha Kadmoni, the first serpent, who was able to entice man into sin by saying to him that if he ate of the tree of knowledge, Eitzadat, V'yitem ke'elohim yodei tovacha. You will become like ke'elohim, kafadimion, like God, Noah of good and evil. And that led man to sin. How did it work? Why did man fall for that? The answer is because he was right. It is the nature of man to aspire to be like God. It is the hope of man to aspire to become like God. It is the goal of man 
to aspire to become like God. It all depends on how you understand the kaf, the like. If you think that you can transplant God, you become God in actuality, then you let into sin. If you realize that it's only Tselem Elohim, only is the wrong word here. If you realize that it's Tselem Elohim, that you're, you're becoming like God, but only more and more and more and more, and you never get to the end. And the only reason why it makes sense is because God is in front of you, so that God remains on top of the pyramid, and you remain climbing closer and closer, then yes, then you can really become Kelohim, similar to God. And this is what Chazal mean in the famous statement I quoted in the beginning. Is it possible to cleave unto God? To cleave unto God means to imitate God. But why does that mean to cleave unto God? It's a very nice thing to imitate God. It sounds good, but how is that cleaving unto God? That is my point. To become merciful, to become moral virtues, to become more and more godly in the ethical, in the sense of value. When I say that man has potential to become like God, I don't mean that he's potential to do miracles or to, or to build things. It means to become more and more and more of value. To become better. To climb the ladder of the good. If you Imitate. If you make yourself more and more and more and more merciful, then you davek b'makom. Why? I think it's literal. Because what is the point of contact between man and God? On the one hand, the gulf is infinite and can't be closed in terms of absolute value. If you're on the ladder, God is at point infinity and you are on number 50. And if you climb high, you'll be 51, which is still pretty far from infinity. But going from 50 to 51 is, even though it's 50 and 51 and not infinity, but plus one, going from 50 to 51 is God, is God-like. It's more than God-like. It's the presence of God in our lives. Perfecting is a form of perfection. Transcending is a form of transcendence. And when man does that, when you are in the climb, when you are growing, then God is present in you. Then you are at Tselem Elohim. And the point of contact is in that very word. Tselem Elohim. The Tselem touches the Elohim. In other words, and now we're going to conclude with simply a statement, where is, translating my original question into halachic terms, where is Kedusha present in the world? Kedusha means the presence of God. Where is the presence of God present in the world? Where is the Kedusha in the world? Kedusha in the world is found in human perfecting of himself. And wherever that is found, then God is present. Bechol makom. Every place where man calls to God, where man approaches God, I will be there. God will be 
אינסייד, ושכנתי בתוך החם, ונקדשתי בתוך בני ישראל. I will be sanctified in the midst of the Jewish people. When man sanctifies himself, when man improves himself in the name of God, he sanctifies God's name, then God is there. And the distance, which is at the same point, is still infinite, is reduced to zero, not because the gap doesn't exist, but because man's approach to God connects him directly to God in this world. We will continue next week in exploring this notion of Salam al-Kim and seeing how it reflects in different um, aspects of halachic life.